great to see you. We've been working through this um, letter of uh, Peter. He's writing to a group of churches, and I suppose for if you're visiting for the first time, maybe you're here for the first few times, um, you might feel as if you're dropping in right at the end of something. Uh, if you go to our website, all of the rest of the talks beforehand are available. You can uh, download those and you can work through to where we've got to. In a lot of ways, it sounds as if we come to the end uh, this afternoon. There is probably at least one, maybe two more, as we just close off this, uh, this letter. Uh, what we've been recognizing is the recipients of a letter. That's what every letter does, doesn't it? It sends a letter to somebody. Somebody writes it, somebody receives it. And the pe- people who receive it, I guess are a lot like us. They are, for many of them, they are relatively new believers in Jesus. Uh, They haven't lived their lives all the time living, believing in Jesus. Many of them will have been brought up in a a Jewish background, so they were well and truly immersed in uh, the Old Testament and Jewish lifestyle, but they were a long way from Jerusalem. They were living in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey, Uh, and they were um, living out in a normal life. And then they are confronted with this message which has compelled them to live in a different way. That's why we've called this series uh, Compelled. This little section here as we close, uh, I guess that we could describe this as the Christian care plan. Many of you will will know what care plans are all about. It's that way in which you describe and you set out uh, how somebody is to be cared for. Uh, Why do we need caring for? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, in another way, I think all of us recognize all sorts of ways why we need caring for. We are not uh, as we ought to be, are we? The world is not as it ought to be. We have challenges, we have difficulties, there are adversities, there is something not right in the world. There are all sorts of things that we do and we say, or we're on the receiving end of doing and saying, which make this life experience profoundly uncomfortable, very difficult, very challenging. I guess the objective of the human race to some extent, the great mission of humanity is to overcome all of those adversities, to work out the challenge underneath it all, to resolve all of the problems and to then live in some sort of utopian uh, world experience where everything is sorted out. Some of you, uh, give me a nod if you've seen the film Gattaca. Okay, I've got about three. Uh, This is going to be a long story, isn't it? Uh, It's a brilliant film, 1997, Gattaca. It's got this idea, just as uh, DNA is being recognized, understood, it's sort of hinting at the idea. Imagine if we could identify what causes all of the reasons why we have problems in our life deep down inside of us. And so they identify the murder gene. They identify the genes that are going to give you health problems. And then what we're able to do ultimately with, you know, on the back of Dolly the sheep and all of that cloning stuff, we can 
we can order perfect human beings where all of that DNA is sorted out and worked out and only good uh, people are ever created and, and all of us would then be no longer the good people, we would be the invalids, the people who uh, are sort of set aside and they just do the menial tasks. Imagine if we could do that, would it resolve the issue? Is the only problem that we have deep down inside of us? Well, in one sense, we would say there is some truth in that. Not in DNA, but in the problem of our hearts. The problem of who we are as people. The problem of what we are as people. The problem with our tendencies and our inclinations. Jesus was talking with a group of religious leaders who had been thinking about this and he was uh, debating with them or they were confronting him when they saw uh, a behavioral pattern which was not really conforming with all of the uh, laws that they'd set out for the perfect religious life. They hadn't washed properly. They hadn't used uh, correct eating utensils. They'd behaved in a way which was uh, religiously unclean. And Jesus turned to them and he said this, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the mouth come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with one unwashed hands does not defile them. You see, the, the issue that these individuals had was maybe we create our problems by not behaving allowing what's in, uh, out there that's bad to come into us. And Jesus said, actually, the problem is not out there. The problem is deep down in here. The problem is our hearts. It's how, who we are as people. It's our tendencies. It's, it's those little behaviors which, when we allow the trajectory of that behavior, it, 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 it's on the same line as a little bit of frustration that becomes anger, that becomes road rage, that becomes uh, assault, that becomes murder. There is a sense in which that comes from inside of us and it pours out of us and it creates the issues that we see around of us. We have a heart problem. And yet what Peter is also saying is, yes, that is right as well. But at a deeper level, it's not just about this world. There is something else going on. It's beyond DNA. It's beyond the problems of our hearts. There is a spiritual dimension. There is, a, there is a, an evil. And there is a good which is outside of us. There is a spiritual dimension which is uh, challenging you and attacking you and bringing you into situations which are which are difficult and hard and there is an adversary there is adversity and there is accusation we're going to see how that works out what is this spiritual dimension what is this way in which it's beyond even our hearts this this thing which is so challenging it's going to come out on point two where we see the conflict but the first starting point, as we see how Peter constructs 
this care package for us is we, have a, we need to understand firstly who we are. We need to understand what relationship we are in and whether we are in a relationship which is in the first place going to be a relationship of care. Look at how he opens up in verse, verse 6 and verse 7. I think probably one of these verses, verse 7, is probably one of the most used verses from the whole of this letter. It's an amazing verse. It's a fantastic, encouraging verse. It says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. That is an amazing thing, isn't it? It's a huge statement. In all of the challenges in this world, for us today, as it was for these first hearers, who at that point in time were facing opposition from the Roman Empire, they were facing imminent persecution, they were losing their well-being, they were losing their families, some of them were losing their lives. And Peter says, in that context, what's important is firstly that you are in relationship with God. When we read that, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that feels with our language and the way we think, really oppressive, doesn't it? Humble yourselves under this mighty hand. That's not how it's described. That's not how it's actually written. It, humble, humbling in this context is not demeaning. It's not weakening. It's actually saying simply, allow yourself to be protected by this mighty hand. Allow yourself to be protected. We're not very good at allowing ourselves to be looked after, are we? Many of us aren't. You know, we, we kind of, we've, we've had an accident, we've had a knock, and, uh, and we're told what you need to do is you need to rest. You need to put that leg up, you know, uh, rest, uh, inclination, ice, compression, and uh, I don't know what rice it is, but you need to rest. And what do we do? I'll be all right. I'll keep, I'll keep going. I'll be fine. And the problem then is that that which should have been healed takes longer and longer and longer because we are not humbling ourselves to the care that is there for us. In psychological, in spiritual terms, in, in relationship terms, God is saying to us quite simply this. I, I have a mighty hand. So allow yourself to trust me. Allow yourself to trust me. When things feel as if they're going wrong, give yourself to trusting me. Stop trying to fight every battle as though you can win it. You're under my mighty hand, he's saying. You're under my care. It's great to be under a mighty hand when it's rested over you and it is protecting you and it is giving you help and support and encouragement. 
You know, have you ever had a butterfly in the house? Delicate, fragile thing. And you gently, you cup your hands and you put your hands around the butterfly. Those hands could crush it in an instant. Compared to the strength of the butterfly, the hands are mighty and strong and powerful, but when they are shaped in protective in a protective way around the butterfly, they lead it to safety. They lead it out into the fresh air and you let it go and it's free and it's safe. That's what Peter is saying. God's hand is mighty. Therefore, give yourself, be like a child, be submissive, trust that this mighty hand is there to take care of you. It is a mighty hand. And then he goes on to say this, cast your anxiety on God because He cares for you. That is just amazing news. It tells us what God is like towards those who He loves, towards those who are in relationship with Him. It says simply this, the God who loves you is a God who cares for you. It's a God who cares for you, who, by the way, he has a mighty hand. That's great news. It means that there is a sense in which you are safe. I say a sense in which you are safe because that reality of safety is only seen from one perspective, which is his perspective. Here we have an individual in Asia Minor who is a new believer in Jesus sometime after Jesus has returned to heaven. The letter of Peter has turned up. He's been going along to this group of Christians with his other friends. And he hears this letter being read out. And he knows that there are all sorts of things that are going on in his life. And he he suddenly realizes the one thing that I need to do above everything else is actually trust in this Jesus. Because he is truly God who has come into the world, who has sacrificed himself for me. And that person is just suddenly compelled and they believe this Jesus. I am convinced that I believe and trust in this Jesus. And then, then it all starts to, well, go out of control in human terms. A few weeks later, he goes into the trade organization that he's part of, the trade brotherhood. And he realizes actually that this person won't trade with him anymore. And this person won't trade with, with him anymore. Because after all, he's part of this weird Christian group this group of Christians that have suddenly appeared in this uh, city in Asia Minor. And they won't trade with him. And, and he's beginning to lose his income. And his, his home is under threat. And feeding his family is under threat. And then he comes back and this letter is read again. And, and the person at the front of the room reads this. He cares for you. Really? doesn't feel like he cares for me right at the moment because it is all falling apart I'm losing my income I'm losing my away the way to feed my family there's no social services in those days there is a real question mark isn't there 
Can I trust that this God who cares for me is a God who can do something? It's a real question, isn't it? I can care for you. And that word, in one sense, can mean that I can just care for you. I've got a relationship with you that I love you. And I'll do all that I can to care for you, but I am limited in what I can do. There are some things that I can't do. There are some things I cannot protect you from. And this letter is saying the God who has a mighty hand can protect you from everything. And then the next day, he realizes that he's lost all his contracts. And he asks the question, can this God really care for me? (laughs) I think that that picture is totally applicable for us today, isn't it? Can God really care for me? In all of the difficulties and all of the challenges. When things go wrong that nobody in this world can sort out. Can God care for me? When the results of the medical investigation are terrifying. Can God care for me? Because there's nobody else in this world who can do anything about it. That's a relationship that that becomes absolutely essential when we start to think, how much can God care for me? Can He care for me big enough and powerful enough and mighty enough to deal with anything? (laughs) And then we realize that Peter then takes us on to understanding why we need a care plan which is more than just day-to-day. Because the next thing from relationship, he takes us on to an understanding of the true conflict that we are engaged in. Here's the true conflict. Here's the reason why we really need to be cared for. He says this, be alert and and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. What's the real conflict? You see, it's expressed for that individual 2,000 years ago. It's It's expressed as losing this contract and then that contract and then being kicked out of the artisan guild, and losing his livelihood, and having his family taken away. It's expressed, it's seen day to day, lived out, as that kind of conflict, as that kind of opposition. But what Peter is saying is, there is an underlying, there is a deeper conflict which is going on. Wake up, wise up, he's saying. Be wise, be clear. Understand, therefore, that there are certain conflicts which are seen in day-to-day, but are deeper than day-to-day. And the reason is because you have an opposition, the devil, which is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You say, hang on. Devils and all that stuff. Peter is saying, if Jesus 
is truly God himself come into the world in human form and has returned to heaven after ascend, uh, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, there is a spiritual dimension. There is something which is seen which is outside of our normal vision. There is a spiritual dimension and there is a conflict which is going on where the devil is described as a roaring lion prowling around seeking to devour us. I found this little um, Heracles in his writings records the oratory in a court case in the ancient world. He, he, uh, he, He writes down what is, if you like, the summing up of the prosecution case against an individual, and he says this. But, I'll try and put my kind of grand Greek oratory voice on, he says this, but, men of the jury, if by your votes you free this defendant immediately, like a lion released from his cage, or some foul beast loosed from his chains, he will slink and prowl about in the forum, sharpening his teeth to attack everyone's property, assaulting everyone, friend and enemy, known to him or unknown, shaking the republic from its foundations. Sounded great, that, didn't it? What would you do if you were the jury? Guilty. That's probably, after that, it's, but what is it, what is Peter picking up on? The language that he's using here, in a sense, he's, he's lifting it straight out of the courtroom. He's using language which was used in the courtroom of the day. A a prosecution would stand up and would use just this kind of language and would condemn the one who was supposedly guilty. And that is exactly what Peter is saying the devil is prowling around seeking to do with you and me. He's accusing us. He's challenging us. He's saying, you are guilty. How does it work? It's just like this. If you were really a Christian, if you were really a Christian, you would never be in this state. If you were really a Christian, God would look after you, wouldn't he? Because he cares for you, doesn't he? You wouldn't have lost those contracts if you were really a Christian because God doesn't care for you, does He? He's accusing you. He's saying you cannot truly be who you claim to be. We are so susceptible to that accusation. We believe it in an instant. We believe that it's that, that's true, isn't it? If God really loved me, or, or, or if I was really, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have been that. He's saying just that. He's accusing you. And that is the very language that Peter is using here. He's saying that the one who, accusing you, who accuses you is like a prosecution, roaring lion, seeking to devour you in the heavenly courtroom, accusing you of guilt. 
The conflict is massive. Your accuser is great. How do we respond, therefore? Look at verse 9. <laughs> Resist him. Resist the accusation. Standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. There's a moment in time where we need to, Peter is saying, just stop, pause. I love that. Stand firm and resist. I think first thing that came to mind as I was reading that is another film, that amazing scene in Gladiator where Maximus is in the middle of the arena with his bunch of gladiators or his soldiers around him and those chariots are about to pour out of the gate and he, he commands them to circle, stand firm, stand. He's saying, stay in, stay in formation. Don't give in to this challenge. Stay in control. Because what we tend to do is we tend to rough, run, rush off in all sorts of panicked directions and Peter is saying, when that accusation comes, when the conflict mounts up, stop, pause, stand firm, hold on, get logical, start thinking. And one of the ways that he helps us to see the reality is saying, you are not alone in the challenge. You are not alone in the conflict. Actually, the accuser of God's people is accusing and challenging and attacking everyone who believes in Jesus everywhere. Do you know what? We need a little bit of honesty with each other, don't we? How are you doing today? Oh, great, thanks. Yeah, really good. Are you? Am I? Actually, no. Do you know what? It's been a tough week. This has happened, that has happened. And when we're honest with each other like that, what we do is we're able to say, yes, we are all in this together, aren't we? We are all part of this. We are all truly believing in Jesus. And actually, the, the attacks are one of the vindications that says, yes, we are part of this body that is being attacked. You know, stand firm. Be together. Encourage each other. Be honest. Be true. Don't put on that veneer that says it's been a wonderful week and I'm smiling like a Stepford wife and everything's wonderful and the reality is I am crushed and broken underneath. But the smile is still working really well. We need each other to stand firm. And we need to realize that we are in one sense together when we realize that the opposition is everywhere against God's people everywhere. We're not good at that, are we? We're not good at realizing, maybe because we've just become inoculated to the news, that when our brothers and sisters are being oppressed in different parts of the world and fleeing all sorts of atrocities because they believe in Jesus, the one of us, part of us. They're part of that broken family which has no strength, which has no ability, no hope other than believing in Jesus. That's all we've got. Nothing more. 
So the conflict is deeper than the simple events of life. There is underneath it a spiritual adversary who's seeking to challenge you. What is the outcome, therefore, of this battle? How is it going to end? Triumph. Simply. Victory. Look at verse 10. And the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. What is our hope? Ability to stand? No, actually. It's the grace of God. He is filled with all grace. So when the opposition comes on and when the challenge comes on and actually, rather than standing firm, I step out of the formation. I step out of the protection of the group. I step out of this little, um, this little weak group of believers who are encouraging each other. And I end up being both a victim and a perpetrator of injustice in this world. I end up pouring out my... Uh, vengeance, or I end up not believing anymore at that moment in time. I lose my hope and my faith. Where am I? Am I, am I just, you know, does the, do the ranks close in behind me and I'm just pushed out to be mown down by the chariots as they wade in? No. The grace of God keeps me, protects me, draws me in when I cannot save myself. That's the hope, isn't it? It's the grace of God that keeps us. Because He's called you to His eternal glory in Christ. What kind of glory is it? Is it a momentary glory? Or is it an eternal glory? Is it a momentary challenge? Or is it an eternal challenge? Is it a momentary or is it an eternal illness? Is it a momentary or is it an eternal anxiety? All of those are momentary. The only thing that is eternal is Jesus and His glory. And that's what we've been drawn into. So the safety is not in all of these fears. It's in the eternity of Jesus. The future, do you remember that advert um, years, a few years ago? The future is bright, the future is orange. Some of you will remember that. The future is bright, the future is Jesus. Why is the future Jesus? Because he is the future, and he is the present, and he is the past. He is the eternal God. It's not like he jumped in and became this superhero that can rescue us for the future. He is the eternal God whose glory becomes our hope. That's who Jesus is. Eternal glory, therefore, eternal triumph is found in Jesus. Look at that little phrase at the end. To him be the, pl- the power forever and ever. Amen. 
How often do we read that kind of thing? To him be the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. His is the power forever and ever, amen. And we kind of just trips off our lips, doesn't it? Just comes this little kind of cutesy idiom that we say at the end of uh, our, our kind of final bit of an epistle where we all feel as though we're, we're going to be rah-rahed and filled with hope at the end. Actually, what that is a, a massive statement, isn't it? His power is forever and ever. Just stop and, and dissect for a moment what we say again and again and again. His power is forever and ever. It is an eternal power. It's not a power that is momentary. It's not a power that can be challenged. It is a power that is over and above any adversity, any anxiety. It is greater and it is eternal. I know that there are many fears in my life that I fear are just too big for me. But Jesus' power is bigger than all of those, and it lasts eternally. Therefore, all of those fears, they're nothing. They're absolutely nothing. Now, there are many times when I don't feel that, I carry on feeling as though they're bigger. And therefore, I need to do what? I need to stand firm. I need to stop. I need to pause. I need to remind myself logically that Jesus' power is forever and ever, and it is more powerful than anything else, and therefore that anxiety is is killed. It's what I need to do. It's what we need to do. Vincent Freeman, who's one of the characters in Gattaca, is an invalid. They discover that his DNA says that by the time he's 30, he's going to have heart problems. And therefore, he's kicked out and he's set aside for menial tasks Actually, he's a, he's a genius. He's brilliant. And he works together with another person. I'm, I'm, okay, spoiler alert. He works with somebody else, and, and together he gets into Gattaca, which is the place that gives him hope to fly off into the stars and to create a new light, a, a new life. And he has to, every day, he has, he has blood tests to check that it's, it's really this guy, Jerome. Uh, and every day, Vincent goes in and he's, he's taped onto his finger a little capsule of blood. And when they do the blood sample, it, it, it's okay. It's not his blood, it's Vincent's blood. Uh, and the, this is the end. 1997, you should have watched it by now, so here's the end. Vincent flies off to the stars. He's saved eventually. At the cost of what? Jerome, who finally gives his life so that Vincent can live. He incinerates himself so that Vincent can live. There's no more Jerome back on earth no possibility of Jerome being found because now Jerome in Vincent is safe. The only problem with Gattaca is Vincent might be up there but he's still limited in his life. 
The message of the Bible is quite simply this, that Jesus sacrificed himself. He was the one, metaphorically, incinerated before the justice of his Father so that we might live. Not for a short time in some distant galaxy, but forever in a world which is resolved, which is worked out again. That's why this letter kind of at this point almost jumps out to him be the power forever and ever. Amen.